good Sunday morning. This is the Arts Section. I'm your host, Gary Zydek. Welcome to WDCB's Arts and Culture Magazine. Every week we spotlight creative people, events, and ideas in the Chicago area arts community, while also fostering broader discussions on music, film, theater, and other creative endeavors. Today on the program, I'll catch up with talented actor and filmmaker Claire Cooney to talk about her new comedy horror film that's opening later this week. Theater critic Carrie Reed will join me to review a revival of Cole Porter's Anything Goes. Later in the show, I'll talk to author and screenwriter Rachel Kohler-Croft about her novel Stone Cold Fox, and we'll hear about the results of a survey that looked at DEI efforts in the local arts sector. All that's coming up. Thanks for tuning in this morning. Horror and comedy mix in the new Chicago set film, Departing Seniors. After making its North American premiere at the Chicago International Film Festival this past October, the movie is now gearing up for a wider release this week. Departing Seniors will be playing at select theaters, including the Music Box in Chicago, and available to rent through video-on-demand platforms starting on Friday. In the film, high school outcast Javier develops a special ability to glimpse into the future after he suffers an injury that sends him to the hospital. If you've ever seen the movie Dead Zone, it's kind of like that. Along with his best friend Bianca, Javier is tasked with stopping a killer who's been picking off his classmates one by one. It's not all blood and guts, there's lots of humor along the way. The movie was brought to life by two former Chicago-based filmmakers. Jose Natares wrote the script and Claire Cooney directs the film. Both are producers on Departing Seniors. Cooney grew up in Michigan and then moved to Chicago after graduating from Notre Dame. She immersed herself in the local theater and film scenes before moving to L.A. a few years ago to further pursue her filmmaking ambitions. I caught up with Cooney on the north side of Chicago to talk about the new movie and her journey as a filmmaker to this point. What brought you to Chicago initially? Yeah, so um, I went to the University of Notre Dame for college and... I didn't even think I was going to pursue the film, TV, theater thing because, you know, it was something I really enjoyed, but it's a really tough career to pursue. There's no guarantee you're going to quote unquote make it. I, and I'm from like a family of, like, my dad's a lawyer and my sister's a, lo- a lawyer and uh, a lot of like doctors and accountants and like very normal jobs in the family. And so I was like, oh, I'm going to go to college and get a degree and be a normal person. And I went to Notre Dame and I got cast in a play my freshman year, which was a surprise to me. And then I kept kind of auditioning on the side and I kept being cast as bigger and bigger roles at school. And then I took on kind of a leadership role in the musical theater group in college and I realized I was like I I don't think I want to stop this I want to keep pursuing this so I love the Midwest I've always been a Midwest girl you know I grew up in the, the Midwest so I wanted to try it and I wanted to stay around here moving to New York or Los Angeles felt like such a leap and such an unknown thing so I came to Chicago first and it was honestly fantastic I started mostly in the theater scene and then 
then eventually kind of got to know the, the film TV scene and was acting and stuff there. And then um, I felt that itch to direct. I had directed a little bit in college uh, and I just really felt like I wanted to explore that. And so, yeah, I was in Chicago for eight years and directing and acting and being involved in both the theater scene and the film TV scene. And I loved it. It's still very much my artistic home. Now you live in L.A., yeah. so when people ask where you're from, do you have to, like, <laughs> qualify your answer? Well, I say in my, like, Instagram bio, I say L.A., Chicago, Detroit. Those are my three places, you know? Like, and I, it's true. I mean, I spend, I think, it depends on the year, but I spend months in Chicago usually every year. Like, I was on a show that was recurring on the CW in 2022, 2021, and so I, I was here for three, four months of the year. And then I always spend the summers in the Midwest. I, there's no place better than Chicago in the summer. So I, I'm often between Chicago and Detroit throughout June, July, August, September. And then I mostly spend the winters in Los Angeles. So ideally, as by coastal as I can be, I'm into it, yeah. Those, those months work out well yeah. <laughs> instead of like the reverse. Why the move to LA? Um, honestly, I felt like I felt like I had achieved a lot really quickly in the film filmmaking side of Chicago like I love I love Chicago I love the community here but I wanted to push myself and be as ambitious as I possibly could and uh, grow my career as much as I could and I felt like people would be calling me in Chicago to have like a meeting for advice about making a short film or wanting to work with me and I kept thinking like I'm a beginner still like I want to be the person who's calling everyone else asking for advice I don't want to be the person people are asking for advice I want to go somewhere where it's I'm working with people at the top of their game the top of the field so this is nothing against Chicago Chicago has some of the most talented people in the whole world but LA is like the epicenter of this business and so I thought I'm, you know, I was 29 and I was like, I'm only going to get the chance to try this once and it's going to get harder and harder. So I really wanted just to go for it. And I knew that if I grew my career the right way in Los Angeles, I could always come back to Chicago and come back with like all this knowledge and experience and kind of really help foster a lot of the great roots Chicago has and kind of be a leader in the film TV scene here. That'd be, I think, eventually my goal. Cooney was working on a number of projects, acting, directing, and producing, when an old friend from Chicago brought departing seniors to her. From what I've read, a connection with a, a friend of yours led to this whole project. Yeah, absolutely. My friend Jose, he wrote it, and he's in Los Angeles too, and we both knew each other from Chicago, because again, Chicago is like a pretty tight-knit community here, um, and so he he wanted my advice about making movies. He knew I directed and produ produced and wrote my own work and made a dollar stretch to make things look much more expensive than they are and, and you know, um, being scrappy with the kind of the work that you approach and um, saying, I'm going to make this today. Basically, that's kind of my mentality is like, yeah, I could wait a couple years and raise the money or I could make this today with the money I have available to me and, and then move on to the next project, which might be a bigger and bigger project. So Jose and I went, went out to lunch and he just kind of picked my brain about stuff and about producing and then a few weeks later he was like actually we're looking for a director is there you would want to come in and talk to us and I went in and I talked to him about the film and that's how it went we then started kind of brainstorming trying to find money and support for the project and then we thought of a, a company in Chicago called Dark Sky Films and we found them and they loved the script and they felt it could be greenlit and made in Chicago for a modest budget and in 16 days so within a few months we were flying to Chicago to shoot, shoot the movie it was a very quick process once 
it was greenlit. Yeah. What did you think of the your initial impressions of the script? I mean, I thought it was charming. I thought it was funny. I thought it was absolutely a love letter to slashers and horror films. And I'd known Jose I was such a fan of horror for so long. And I'm much more of like a thriller drama kind of person. And so when he sent me the script, I, I thought it was really funny and a really like commercially viable film. I think it's something that like a lot of people will like in terms of folks that like Scream, folks that like Mean Girls, folks that like, I, I think there's a lot of different comps that are movies people really, really adore. And so in that way, I felt it was a really viable film. And so I said to Jose, I was like, you need to send me a list of all the movies you want me to watch because I'm, I'm more of a thriller kind of person. And so I want to make sure I'm doing this this script justice in terms of all the different Easter eggs and all the different horror references and stuff like that. Once you got this, you started diving into it. It was more that. I love Scream. I've watched Scream a ton. And I was a big fan of like um, more like artistic horror films. Like I love the original um, Let the Right One In, the Swedish film. I loved that one. I watched that in film class in college and I was like taken. And so I had seen some very like artistic horror films in college. And then I'd seen some really fun, campy horror films with just my friends. But I wasn't someone who was like going to catch the, the latest like horror film you know and then now I've watched I've watched the whole catalog like I mean I had a deep dive into watching you know Jennifer's Body and Happy Death Day and Barbarian and I, I, I there's a lot of films I had seen I'm definitely much more of a fan now uh, there's a couple I still haven't seen that I'm too afraid to see like I still haven't seen Hereditary I'm too nervous about it so there's still a couple where I have to like protect my psyche so I don't lose sleep but in general I've become much less it takes a lot now for me to get freaked out. Um, yeah. I've almost because I've watched these films with an eye of someone who's making the films, so it's not as hard to scare me now. I think. Right. Yeah, yeah. Touching on the the script, and you mentioned Scream. That's something. Uh, when I watched it, I kind of got some Scream vibes, and also uh, Jennifer's Body because it's like these. Uh, Teens, I know that's in the script, making it feel like it's a real high school situation. Is that, what, what was that like? Yeah, that was really important to me because a lot of these high school films cast like 30-year-olds. Right. And I was like, no, I want it to really feel like they're high schoolers. So it was important we cast people that are like 19, 20, 21, the people that really are close to the actual ages. Uh, that was huge because I think... I think high school's a really tough thing where you're still such a kid and you're having to be growing up, especially nowadays. Like there's horrific things happening in high school that weren't happening when I was in high school. Uh, and you have to be a much more adult. And I think social media also is such that like, you're having to present yourself to the world at such a young age in a way that I didn't have to do when I was when I was 16, 17. So the humor of this film, it's very darkly comedic and dry and sarcastic. And I think that is how a lot of like uh, Gen Zers are. Uh, there's this level of jadedness to their approach to the world. And, uh, and it's really funny, but it's also a bit sad, you know, that they have to be like that. So we wanted to really make a film that was representative of the current high school climate. And then um, the decision to shoot it in Chicago, why did that make sense? That was always in it. So Jose was born and raised here. I lived here for eight years, but Jose is from, from Chicago. And so it was always gonna be a Chicago film. It's like, you know, we came up watching John Hughes films, like classic Chicago kind of high school stuff. And so that, that was always gonna be what it was. But also Chicago is kind of my artistic home and all my 
my, my casting directors, I, I was basically a casting associate at a place called PR Casting, and so that's who cast the film. Like, my mentors cast the film, and, um, and uh, you know, the, we got our amazing camera package from Divisionist Films, which I've worked with many, many times. Like, um, so many connections and uh, people supported this film. We wouldn't have gotten that support if we filmed it in Los Angeles. This is a Chicago film through and through. All Chicago crew, almost entirely all Chicago cast, Chicago resources. You know, we, we filmed one of the climactic scenes at um, the Athenaeum Theater, which is a pretty famous Chicago theater. We filmed at Sullivan High School in Rutgers Park. The whole thing... Yeah, it, it had to be Chicago for a million reasons. Yeah, I was going to ask where that theater scene was, so the Athenaeum yeah. makes sense. Uh, and since it came together pretty quickly, then you had to find your locations. Did you have some input in that? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. We were all diving in trying to find the right places because finding a high school that's open to allowing us to film was not easy, especially because we filmed in mid-August. And so schools were starting back up again pretty soon. But we had a, con like a friend of a friend who worked at Sullivan who allowed us in and there were certain times. And then we had to film the exterior somewhere else. So that's the magic of movie making. The Athenaeum Theater, I knew the Dauphin Box because the, the camera rental house and they're involved with the Athenaeum and so it was all a lot of who you know um, but it was really hard. Each location from the pool to the theater to the school took us using every connection we had, every friendship we had. Um, we could afford to pay them of course but not not the amount that they would charge for like a commercially, you know, we're, we're a little indie film. So it was a lot of like, hey, please support Chicago artists, please, you know. So it was definitely a group try to make this all happen. Yeah. If you're just tuning in, I'm Gary Zydek. This is the arts section. I'm talking to filmmaker and former Chicagoan Claire Cooney about her new movie, Departing Seniors. There are some supernatural elements in the story, but as an independent film, there's also budget limitations. Cooney had to come up with some creative ways to bring the script to life. So in the, the film, Javier has this accident, and then he, he develops this power, I guess you would say, or, or some type of ability. So the way it's like shot, like when he touches a person or like an object, he'll get like these flashes. I was thinking like dead zone. So what were your thoughts on how to visualize his mental flashes? Yeah, so in terms of, like, that was an interesting process. I, I was watching a lot of different things. I was watching Minority Report. I was watching uh, Final Destination. I was watching Dead Zone. Anything that had, like, visions and things like that, I would absolutely watch and think of, like, how can I... What what about this works in terms of this, the, the way it's shot and the way that characters react and the way it's cut and all that kind of stuff. But I also wanted to make sure that this was something different, you know? And... That was something that was absolutely following our instincts. I helped cut the film, but the person who mainly cut the film is a woman named Isabella McCarthy. She did a great job. We were very collaborative together. We had a concept, basically. Jason Chu, the, the DP and I, we used a dolly to do an intense push-in when he touched someone. So it was almost like we are zooming into his brain. And then the same when we're leaving his brain, like zooming out. We did a, a really fast dolly in, dolly out. Um, and then, we got these really close up inserts of the eyes with a pretty kind of like t technicolor thing. It just felt like falling into an acid dream, you know. Um, I wanted it to feel very dreamlike and disconcerting and a little scary, but also uh, have enough clarity that 
you could follow the plot of what he's actually seeing. Uh, and so the, we had a lot of different ideas that we tested out in uh, in post production. Then we found this kind of like quick, frenetic, intercutting quality that just it's it just. I don't know, it grabbed my attention and then I showed it to people and people were like, that was cool. And so I was like, all right, sweet. If that's your response, <laughs> let's do it. Yeah. Uh, it definitely worked. Funny random note for me. I read Dead Zone when I was like 13, but then uh, my wife and I watched a Stephen King documentary and they talked about the film. So she wanted to watch it, the Christopher Walken. Yeah. And so we had just watched it like two weeks ago. So then, yeah. Well, the, there's one moment in Dead Zone when he's at the hospital bed and he sees the fire, yeah. you know, and the, the, that was really informative because uh, I don't want to give too much away, but when Javier is having a vision, when the visions start to get very dangerous, whatever's happening to the character in his vision, it, you see is happening to him a little bit. Like if someone has a bloody cut yeah. on their forehead, he does too. That felt like a... That was a little bit of the dead zone thing where it's he's seeing a fire and then all of a sudden his bed is on fire. It's not real, it's in his brain, but I think visually I thought that was a really powerful kind of reference to, to bring into it. Cooney was thrilled to see Departing Seniors premiere at the Chicago International Film Festival in October and is excited about it now getting a wider release. Next up, she's gearing up for some new projects. Anything in the works for Down the Road? Yeah, nothing I can really announce, but there's a couple different scripts that I'm loosely attached to direct, so I'm hoping one of them comes through with funding. Uh, it's been a little slow with the strikes, but now that the strikes are lifted, uh, I think that things are going to get into motion. So I definitely think there's some horror, thriller kind of scripts that I'm excited to sink my teeth into. And then I just directed a short film in Arizona. Um, I just acted in a short film uh, last week. I'm so I'm happy. Like Things are still really moving, even though the things have been slow with the strike. More features to come, hopefully. I'm really excited to direct my sophomore feature and hopefully more after that. Yeah. I'm going to guess it's a mix, but right now, would you pick acting, directing, producing? Like, what are you yeah. most... I love I love both directing and acting. Uh, producing is something I do kind of out of necessity. At this level, the director really has to be deeply involved in the production of stuff. Um, it's just because an indie film never gets... Uh, quite enough support as it needs um, and so you're using every connection available to you so producing's fine but I love the thing I love is directing and acting my dream would be to be able to do both like I want one day want to do something like you know Bill Hader do doing Barry where he's acting in it but he's also directing or uh, Phoebe Waller-Bridge doing Fleabags something like that is something I'd love to do down the road I definitely am leaning into the directing side of things right now just because I, I love it and um, and that's kind of where the momentum is and you have to follow the momentum in this business um but yeah i'm always available to act in things i love to act as well claire thanks so much thank you this was great that was claire cooney she's the director of the new movie departing seniors it's opening in select theaters and will be available to rent through most video on demand platforms starting on friday Thanks for spending some of your Sunday morning with me. Just a quick reminder, if you listen to the Arts Section, make sure to check out the show's website over at theartssection.org. 
There you can find past episodes and individual features available to listen to on demand anytime you want, plus pictures and links that go along with all the features you hear on the show. And if you want to reach out to me with a comment, question, or suggestion, you can email me at gzydic at wdcb.org or find me on Instagram or X, formerly known as Twitter, with the handle at onairgary. I get no kick from champagne Mere alcohol, it doesn't move me at all So tell me why should it be true That I get a kick out of you And you are listening to the arts section My name is Gary Zydek Joining me remotely is theater critic Carrie Reed. Good morning. Good morning, Gary. So Jonathan is still out on assignment. He'll be back with us soon. In the meantime, we've got lots to talk about. Porchlight Music Theater has been celebrating legendary composer and songwriter Cole Porter with a months-long festival that started in October. It continues this winter with a 90th anniversary production of Porter's 1934 musical, Anything Goes. It's been revived numerous times over the decades with some updates to the book. Porter's music remains timeless. I get a kick out of you all through the night. And the title song were all introduced in Anything Goes. Carrie, what did you think of this Porchlight production? Well, I'm just going to flat out say it is a corker. Uh, Yes. If you don't like Cole Porter, then I, I don't know what to tell you. <laughs> but it would be possible to like Cole Porter and still look at the earlier uh, versions of the libretto of, of, of this particular musical, which, as you said, premiered in 1934, and, and, and wince a little at some of the, you know, the racist stereotypes and other you know, uh, tropes that were incorporated in it. The book of the musical was originally written by English comic genius P.G. Woodhouse, Guy Bolton and the writing team of Howard Lindsay and Russell Krauss. Um, it's the story of a group of travelers on a transatlantic liner to England, which in, in the, the, the passenger list includes a Woodhousian upper-class twit and his somewhat reluctant American fiance Hope. She's a debutante whose family is facing financial ruin. Shades of Titanic, perhaps. <laughs> There's also a gangster and his sidekick, a drunken American financier and his assistant known as Billy, who is in love with the debutante, while the financier turns out to be an old beau of the debutante society mother. So it's all quite confusing. Lots of, you know, farcical components, well captured with the, you know, literal swinging doors, three of them set center stage in this Porchlight production. But the real star of the show, and the real reason to see this musical, or at least the most important reason to see it, because there are several good reasons, is the wonderful Megan Murphy as Reno Sweeney. Reno Sweeney is a, as a character, is a cabaret star who sort of pulls the strings that ties everything together in this uh, this this comic romp on the high seas. Murphy, I don't know how many of our listeners are familiar with her, but she has been in many musicals in Chicago over the years and also performs around the world in her cabaret persona of Big Red, a reference to both her statuesque. Yeah, you know, physique and her, you know, flaming red hair. <laughs> she absolutely blows the roof off the roof page center uh, with Porter songs like Blow Gabriel Blow, You Are the Top. Um, in fact, it's hard to see why 
the young male ingenue Billy, who is in love with Hope, wouldn't just dump Hope for you know for Reno as soon as Reno beckons to him. But you know, that's always the way. You know, it's the high-powered gals who have to you know find their own way, and she does find her own love. I don't want to give away all the plot details. Not that they matter because they're absolutely ridiculous, but absolutely adorable. This is just a very well-crafted, fun show. Beautiful voices throughout under the musical direction of Nick Sula. Michael Weber, the artistic director for Porchlight, has really honored Cole Porter's legacy here. And as as you mentioned, uh, it's gone through several updates. And the libretto is now finally updated, I would say, for the better. He got a revision a few years ago with Timothy Krauss, who is son of one of the original book writers, Russell Krauss, and John Weidman, who is a longtime collaborator for Stephen Sondheim. Um, it, it works much better. There is still one possibly cringeworthy musical number um, called uh, The Gypsy in Me, so you kind of have to, you know, work your way through that one. But it's delivered by the, the Woodhosian twit, <laughs> uh, played to beautiful comic, you know, comic aplomb by Jackson Evans. And so that, that, that helps, you know, assuage some of the, uh, our, our current, you know, political, uh, feelings around the use of the term gypsy but that's a small point most of this is just a delightful uh song and dance spectacle um it lasts about two and a half hours and it just absolutely flies by if you're looking for something to warm up the winter nights i can't imagine a better outing than uh going on the high seas with anything goes of course like music theater and you were saying this is maybe a nice alternative to some of the the darker plays that sometimes we see programmed in the winter beef. Now, not that everyone does this, but I, I've noticed sometimes that in the dark of winter is when many companies decide it's time to, you know, trudge out their three-hour, you know, heavy-duty dramas. And I'm thinking, but why? <laughs> I'm fine with those, but it's nice to have a little bit of an antidote. And with the Woodhouse connection to this, I was actually thinking about the late, great First Folio Theater in Oak Brook, um, that always used to present, uh, not always, but almost every year, presented their adaptations of P.G. Woodhouse, you know, uh, Bertie and Jeeves stories. And those are always so delightful in the middle of January to have something that kind of, you know, some kind of a fluffy, light comic confection. So here you've got that, plus the great score by Cole Porter and some, as I said, just terrific performances. In addition to Megan Murphy, who, who is definitely the star, definitely the center of this production, but I think that it's such a well-balanced ensemble that I wanted to call out a few more performers. Um, Steve McDonough is an absolute comic gem as Moonface Martin. He is a scheming gangster on board. He's public enemy number 13 and desperate to move up the list. Tafaz Medina is his sidekick, the saucy sailor entrancing Irma. And uh, again, I mentioned Jackson Evans as the bumbling aristocrat, Bertie Wo- uh, Lord Evelyn Oakley, who <laughs> has a very Bertie Wooster kind of uh, feel to him. Yeah, and and uh, M.O.J. plays Hope, the ingenue, and Luke Nowakowski is Billy, her would-be suitor, and um, they're very they're wonderful together. But you know th- what I like about this show is that it really does belong to kind of the uh, the, the you know the, the slightly older, perhaps more world-weary uh, performers, and that would definitely be uh, you know uh, Murphy's Reno, McDonough's Moonface Martin, and, uh, you know, and, and uh, just a bevy of other fine performances. I know I'm just absolutely bubbling over with enthusiasm for this, but I have to say it's just a delight to see a show that's so well-constructed. Uh, for our listeners who have not been to Porchlight Music Theater at the Ruth Page Center, 
it's a pretty intimate, you know, setting. It's a proscenium stage, but you'll feel pretty close up. All the better to take in the fabulous costumes by Rachel Boylan and the wonderful choreography by Tammy Mater. Are a lot of resources needed to put on a good production of Anything Goes? As far as production design and costumes, I think it's a, a bigger cast. You know, I think you can do it with a fairly simple set, which they've done here. It's a two-state, you know, it's like a two-level set. The uh, seven-piece band is sitting on top, and there's, of course, like a little railing to look like a ship's deck. And as I mentioned, since it's a farce and you want your swinging doors, all they need really is the, um, you know, the, the, the trio of doors with little that swing around uh, with little portholes in them. And there's very, you know, there's some small set pieces that move off and on quite quickly. Really, you just need enough space for everybody to move, and you just need, you know, terrific belters, and that's what this production gives us. Porchlight Music Theater's production of Anything Goes continues through February 25th at the Ruth Page Center. Gary, thanks so much. Oh, you're welcome, Gary. May I say, you're the top. <laughs> thanks. You're tuned into the arts section. I'm Gary Zydek. Books will likely be written about the tumultuous nature of the summer of 2020. A quick refresher if you've blocked it out. We were, of course, still navigating the COVID pandemic. Then the murder of George Floyd on May 25th sparked a social justice reckoning. The ripple effects of the tragedy and ensuing protests impacted a number of sectors, including the arts and culture landscape. Nationwide and here locally, a number of leading institutions announced commitments to improving equity. But did anything come of those public declarations? A new report outlines the results of a survey that aimed to tackle that question and others. The report, titled Work Remains to be Done, was released by Enrich Chicago last week. Enrich Chicago is committed to advancing anti-racist transformation and dismantling systemic racism in the arts and culture sector. This is Enrich Chicago director Nina Sanchez. I caught up with her to talk about the report's findings and her organization's efforts over the past nine years. Enrich Chicago actually started its work in, in 2014? That's correct. Enrich Chicago came together um, initially in 2014 as an informal uh, collective of leaders across the arts and culture space in the city that spanned uh, cultural organizations and arts presenters, as well as individuals who represented the philanthropic community and in particular foundations. A new report outlining the results of a recent survey of Enriched Chicago member organizations and the BIPOC people that work for them was released, and we're going to look at some of the those results. But first, what were you hoping to come away with from this survey? I view the survey as just one more tool for us to um, better understand the impact of our work and the ways that Enriched Chicago, an institution that exists to support learning, to, exist, to support skill building, and a building a field of leaders committed to anti-racism and anti-oppression, how we can better partner with both our member institutions and the arts and culture sector um, at large. And so uh, we decided to use this survey to understand what are the experiences of BIPOC people in the arts and culture space right now. Is there any difference to how they might have been feeling 10 years ago? Um, are there any specific learnings um, that we might glean from their sharing with us to uh, make some different decisions about where and how we spend our time within enriched programming, 
um, how we might better coach and assist our members um, in terms of the work that they're doing and what recommendations more broadly we could offer to any institution in arts and culture, whether they're formally engaged within the Chicago or not, to, to do a bit more, um, to make more visible um, the racial equity work that many, many institutions have taken on. And we believe that those intentions are good. We believe that often there is work happening. And I think that the research and the findings connected to the research really illuminate the extent to which we need to really be more external uh, and proactive in communicating the work that we are taking on, what we're learning along the way, taking responsibility for our shortcomings, and committing to um, moving forward in a different direction to try to repair um, any harm that's being caused. If you're just tuning in, I'm Gary Zydek. This is the Arts Section. I'm talking with Enrich Chicago Director Nina Sanchez about her organization's new report that looks at efforts to improve equity in the local arts and culture landscape. So when I I looked at the report, one of the first things that stuck out to me was the number of arts organizations that implemented an action plan. So we saw a lot of statements in the summer of 2020, a lot of things posted on websites and social media. But as far as action, the survey revealed maybe it it didn't go as far as hoped. That's correct. The survey um, revealed that, that while there were statements, there wasn't a complementary set of actions to make real the spirit of those statements. And as one respondent to the survey put it, don't just talk about it, do something about it. And I think that that is pretty much sums, sums it up <laughs> uh, for this survey, I think, and also a lot of other um, research projects like this. There is often a gap between our, our stated aspirations and the action steps that are taken. Some of this has to do with the fact that this work is long-term and generational, right? There were people before us taking on these issues. There are going to be people after us taking on these issues. And what we want to encourage is, yes, we want care, we want thoughtfulness, but we also want a bias toward action. So as you consider the whole set of options you have to change something about the culture of your organization, the policies of your organization, and the practices of your organization, what is it that you can um, implement in the immediate future? What is within your power now that you can act on? And we're certain that there is something, and uh, we want to continue to encourage people to, um, to, to leverage whatever small actions they can take, um, to be uh, transparent about those actions, to communicate those actions out to their uh, staff community and also the community at large um, that many of our institutions endeavor to partner with and support so that um, that can be visible. So you, because of your role within Rich Chicago, I would imagine you have your finger on the pulse of what's going on. Was there anything in the report that surprised you? I don't know that there was anything that um, was brand new to me, but I was struck by this perception of our BIPOC colleagues in the arts around the role of the executive leader in advancing racial equity efforts within their institution. And also, I was really pleased to see the level of work that our research team brought to this analysis to be able to to point out with great specificity the differentiated ways people are impacted across multiple lines of identity. Right, so we were able to understand what a cisgender Latina woman might experience in her workplace. And we also come, came to a greater understanding of how some of these issues of workplace 
discrimination or microaggression or, or sense of belonging um, really fall short for people who identify as Black and LGBTQIA+. And so those were two pieces of learning from this uh, research that um, I really appreciated being pulled out and elaborated upon. So I saw some of the, the recommendations, uh, which listeners can find at enrichshy.org. They can find the, the whole report there. What came through to me, and I'm oversimplifying a little bit, but essentially there, there needs to be a better commitment from arts organizations uh, to equity and that it, it should be more transparent. That, that is accurate. I think that we want to support our member organizations and encourage people in the arts and culture sector at large to really contemplate and consider the ways they are forthcoming and public, publicly transparent with not just their, their vision for the future, their aspirations for the future, but the work that they're actually doing. And to make a regular practice of this, right, to give regular updates, to not to pat ourselves on the back, <laughs> but to, um, to share in our learning, right? When we, when, we, when we engage in this kind of behavior, a transparent, regular, and accountable communication, that is how ultimately we will build trust and gain trust with the most impacted communities uh, and that is our BIPOC community in Chicago. How uh, absent that, it will continue to be work that maybe, although it exists, is not accessible and in many ways will not be impactful to those communities. So number one is having that open, external, and regular communication as a matter of organizational practice. In the same way they would make a report to their board in the same way they create uh, institutions create an annual report to their donors and patrons, they should speak to these issues. Nina Sanchez is the director of Enrich Chicago. Thanks so much for making time to talk with me. Thank you so much, Gary. It was a pleasure. I'm Gary Zydek, you're tuned into the Arts Section on WDCB. Just over 10 years ago, author Rachel Kohler-Croft was working in sales in Chicago. These days, the Chicago native spends her days writing novels and screenplays. She's already had one of her scripts made into a movie, and her debut novel has gotten rave reviews. The book titled Stone Cold Fox is a fun thriller tailor-made for our current times. Think the talented Mr. Ripley mixed with a dash of Gone Girl and American Psycho, but set in the 2020s. The story revolves around a young woman named B, who has grand plans to marry into one of America's wealthiest families. After surviving a traumatic upbringing, B is more interested in security than love. Of course, the blue bloods of this world won't allow just anyone to join their club, yet alone their family. In order to get her happy ending, B has to win over her fiancé's ultra-wealthy family, defeat a jealous rival, and escape a shady past. I caught up with Croft while she was in Chicago for a book event supporting Stone Cold Fox. It was also a homecoming for the celebrated author. She grew up in the southwest suburbs before her family moved to the northwest side of Chicago. Writing was always a passion for Croft, though her journey to published author and credited screenwriter took some unique twists and turns. 
I always wanted to be an author, a writer, screenwriter, things of that nature, but I think, you know, I came from a pretty traditional family, and even though they were always very encouraging, I wasn't exactly 100% sure how to go about it. Um, but after college, I was going to move to, back to England because I did my year abroad there and met somebody. And we were very young. And when we broke up, I said, okay, well, I'm moving to California instead. And I packed up my Honda Accord and drove out to LA. And my first job there was actually at a very popular celebrity gossip blog and turned out not to be my calling. <laughs> I did that for about a year and a half. And I think I conflated the job with Los Angeles in general and I actually moved back to Chicago for a couple of years but it was a very fortuitous detour and I also got into sales which ended up also being a very fortuitous detour because I don't think people tell screenwriters uh, or aspiring screenwriters that 80% of that job is sales so I went over to a startup company where I sold luxury floral arrangements to hotels and residential buildings and all sorts of places around the city um, for their flowers and I became one of the top salespeople in the company and in 2013 they moved me out to Los Angeles so I kind of got my second chance in California and popped around a couple other sales jobs here and there but I just was meeting a lot of people that were working as writers directors assisting those people all sorts of things, including my ex-boyfriend who was going to be working on becoming a screenwriter. And when we had a really gnarly breakup, I decided, well, if he can do it, I certainly can. Mm -hmm. And so I sat down to write my first script and I sold it a few months later to a production company on the Sony lot. And I've been working pretty steadily as a screenwriter ever since. If you hadn't gone to LA and you'd stayed in Chicago, do you think you would have eventually gone down that route? It's really hard to say. Um, you know, I think Chicago is a very creative town as well. It's quite possible I would have went the novel route before the screenwriting route. I think just when you're in Los Angeles, you're surrounded by the industry and it's very exciting and um, it seemed inaccessible, but also I think I could figure out my way in and I certainly did. But um, I know it's impossible to say what would have happened had I stayed in Chicago. It was just one of those, I guess you could say that about any turning point in your yeah. life. <laughs> you brought up screenwriting. So I know you've probably, you've worked on like other scripts, but the film that I, I know you from is this movie that came out, was it last year or two years ago, Torn Hearts, which is maybe more of a thriller with country music influences. Uh, we can talk about that, but I'm just curious, do you have a different mindset when you're writing a screenplay versus sitting down to write like a novel? Yes. So for screenplays... They're, they're both challenging in different ways, but with a screenplay, you just don't have as much real estate on the page. So you have about 90 to 120 pages to tell your story. There's a lot of white space on those pages, character names, stage directions. So you really have to get to the point and kind of make it snappy and make sure you're hitting all of these emotional beats. Now, I will say for me personally, I think being a screenwriter first made me a better novelist because I approach my novels and kind of a cinematic way. But what I really liked about writing novels that I can't do with screenplays I mean, the whole book is in B's mind, for example. I really get to focus on character interiority, which in a script you kind of can't do. Um, you can get away with a little voiceover here and there, but generally you have to show everything that's going on in different ways. And I liked being able to spend time in her head the whole time. And then also I can write about what the room looks like, what clothes they're wearing. Like you get to be the director or the costume designer, or the sound designer and everything. And the book is the finished product with your name on it and it's your book. And that's not to say, I mean, there's a team that puts it together and it, it takes a village and all of that, but the author's name is on it and they're driving the creative. And with a screenplay, screenplay isn't the finished product. It's a finished screenplay, but like 
most people aren't going to sit down to read it, right? It's kind of like the, the map to making the final product, which is the movie. And there's a ton of people involved in making a movie. So you're just kind of one part of it. Even though you are originating the story, it ultimately becomes, it belongs to a lot of people by the time the film is out in the world. And then sometimes you write a screenplay, you sell it, you can make a whole living as a screenwriter and still not get produced because it just is a long journey. It's a long path to production. And barring something really bizarre happening to you, if you get a book deal, your book will be published and a physical product out in the world. So that was very exciting for me. Stone Cold Fox will be transitioning to screen at some point, hopefully. We can talk about that later. So yeah, let's talk about the book. Starting points, was there a moment of lightning strikes inspiration where you had this idea for a story? Or was it kind of like a gradual thing? Um, a little bit of both. I mean, Bee's voice was kind of the lightning strike moment. I kind of started playing around with her voice. And I want to preface this by saying it's like her ambition and sense of humor when I say the next thing I'm going to say. But she kind of comes from three of my best girlfriends and myself and how we talked to each other and our sense of humor and things like that. And then I just kind of really dialed it up for B. I didn't want to make her caricature, but I wanted to make her a villain, but in the way that I respond to villains. And what I mean by that is they're rarely a good villain, is rarely black and white. They have a lot of motivation and they make very active choices. And that was something for me as a thriller reader that I thought as a thriller writer, I could kind of bring something a little bit different to the table. And that not only was she three-dimensional, but she was also really funny because I find a lot of thrillers can stay very serious mm -hmm. and I enjoy those, but almost everything I write, especially if you saw Torn Hearts, even though it's scary or creepy, still has, you know, a, a healthy splash of humor. So like really leaning into that character um, was very helpful for my first draft and it sort of read as just kind of like B's story. But um, when I went in to do the second draft, I kind of dug in a lot deeper into her characterization and then the world at large where I was putting her in, which is the world of the 1%, coupled with a few strategic flashbacks. So people that may not like B, because some people don't like her, um, would still understand her. And so that was important to me as well. But yeah, my agent, um, when I when she read the first draft and responded and wanted to work with me, she said something to the effect of, you do realize you wrote a novel about a complicated mother-daughter relationship. And I was like, oh yeah, I guess I did. Because the mother character in the first draft was not um, as big of an influence as she is in the, in the final iteration. So going back in with her at the center of a lot of B's motivation, I think just made the story stronger. It made her characterization stronger. And that became more of a process. But as far as like the publishing timeline, I think it was all told, I started the first draft kind of lackadaisically because I was working on my paid screenwriting stuff and just writing this in my free time. That was took about a year, and then I worked on it with my agent for about another year. We went out with it. Multiple editors were interested, which was very exciting, so it went to auction, and I ended up with a two-book deal from Berkeley, which is an imprint of Penguin Random House, and I'm very happy there. Yeah. <laughs> If you're just tuning in, this is the Arts Section. I'm Gary Zydek. I'm talking with author Rachel Kohler-Croft about her new novel, Stone Cold Fox. The book follows a young woman named Bee who is unapologetically ambitious and a little dangerous. I would say that Bee is a very ambitious and beautiful young woman who is the semi-reformed daughter of a con artist. So she was raised by someone with, let's say, loose morals. And so um, when she grows up and kind of escapes her mother's clutches, she kind of, in a much more heightened way, it's this, you know, nature versus nurture comment. So one of the things she's always thinking about is like, is this something my mother would do? And if so, she kind of tries to run the other way. But all this to say, she 
didn't have a lot of safety and security growing up. And so she kind of sees a path to her future where she can actually get some peace and feel safe and secure by marrying into the 1%. So when she happens upon Colin Case, who is from the type of family like Johnson and Johnson kids or Kennedy's things of that nature, you know, East Coast, old money, blue blooded family, she decides, oh, maybe I will infiltrate there. And because she is such a beautiful woman, she's not super concerned with getting the ring from him, but she knows just based on where he comes from, she might be facing some opposition from his family and inner circle, namely his childhood best friend and who has an unrequited crush on him, Gail Wallace Lester, who will stop at nothing to take Take B down. <laughs> it's interesting because she desperately wants to be part of the Case family for the reasons you kind of described. There's a lot of financial security, but at the same time, she seems to detest them. Yes, I thought that would be really interesting for a main character, someone that's both enticed and repulsed by ultimate wealth, because I think that is kind of a relatable emotion for a lot of people. We're all very fascinated by the 1%, and wow, a lot of that stuff looks really nice, but it's also sort of stomach-turning as well. So there's something um, I really liked exploring through Bee's eyes, just kind of the criticism she has while also kind of having this mentality of, well, if you can't beat them, join them, because she does acknowledge that, well, it's better than the alternative, and it is what it is, and I want to feel like I don't have to worry about those things anymore. So in a lot of ways, I don't think Bee is your average gold digger trope. Um, she's not really a bimbo. She is very smart, very funny, very accomplished in her own right. She has a career. She always has a plan B, C, and D, always looking over her shoulder. And so she's just kind of always on. And I think she sees this potential marriage as a way to finally feel at peace and relaxed and not like her mother and the world at large are going to be out to get her anymore. Like you mentioned, a lot of us have this interest at the 1%, uh, probably an unhealthy interest, but <laughs> my wife and I watched the uh, Harry and Meghan. There's just something about learning about, you know, behind the scenes of something. We don't, we don't know anything about what those lives are like. So for the fictional case family, mm -hmm. did, is that something you do research on or is it kind of like you embellishing what you think it might be like? Um, yes and no. I mean, so I live in Los Angeles, which the wealth there has a very different vibe, right? It's not a lot of old money. It's a lot of show, <laughs> showy and not, you know, as uh, discreet, I would suppose. Um, and I don't want to say this family was like a direct example, um, but I had an ex-boyfriend that kind of came from a fancy family and his mother was not very nice to me. So that was kind of a seed of those characters ultimately went in entirely different directions. This is distinctly not autofiction. It is a novel, but that was something that I certainly considered. And then, I don't know, I've like subscribed to Town & Country for many years. I I love the show Succession. I feel like there are just um, things we know from the larger culture that I, you know, kind of took into consideration and thought about. But it was a combination of that type of research and then also just people I have come across in my career and kind of using them as a, a springboard to explore some of these themes. And your novel is definitely its own things. But yeah, a couple of things that sprung to mind as I'm reading was Succession because the interplay between siblings of like this ultra wealthy family, they kind of have their own language mm -hmm. when dealing with each other. And then also a little bit the talented Mr. Ripley and like the issues he, he kind of like masters the replication of, of Dickie, but uh, it's like the, not being accepted into their world. B is really trying to ingratiate herself. Yes, and she's a very observant character and has been observant her entire life. You even see that in the flashbacks. And she's a really good 
mimic in a lot of ways. She knows, I mean, even when she's coming up with her story, knowing where she wants to head with it, you know, she's like, well, I can't say I went to Harvard or one of these schools because that network runs really deep. And she's just always kind of thinking ahead um, and responding in the moment and feeling really prepared. And that's like one of the things I really love about this character is because she just has so much agency and puts her foot on the gas and takes big swings and is a woman kind of in control of her destiny in a lot of ways. And that's not to say she doesn't face conflict, but um, she's not the type of character that isn't remembering things or feels like, oh, she's a mess and all these things are happening to her. Like she's very much a, a type A character that's gonna get her head in the game. And so when she meets someone like Gail, you know, initially, I think they both underestimate each other, but it's kind of exciting to her in a way that reminds her of her mother, which is both, you know, it obviously repels her, but there's something about that um, cat and mouse game with Gail at the start that she thinks it's gonna be fun. And then she soon realizes um, she may have underestimated this woman and things can get dangerous really fast. <laughs> So with Stone Cold Fox, you have this idea around this character B, and then you start writing. Do you know how it's going to end right away, or does that come? You know, I'm someone that has loose outlines, and I use that both for screenwriting and for novel writing because so much of my process, I've just realized now over the years of we're doing it so much, is that a lot of stuff will happen to me as I'm writing. Like things, I don't think about certain stuff when I'm outlining the same way I must think about stuff when I'm actually in flow and writing. So a good example of Stone Cold Fox is like the character of Ren Daly was not in my outline. She just kind of appeared one day and I was like, oh, she's funny. She can stay and B can kind of use her in her in her game. So I want to make sure I leave myself room for exploration and moments that I didn't anticipate. However, I do have a general idea of my beginning, my middle, and where I want it to land. And I would say I had a couple alternate endings for the book, but they were all kind of going in the similar direction. So I kind of made the judgment call by the time I got there. And the ending wasn't like a total surprise to me. So I do like to plot out some. I'm kind of like half planner, half let's see what happens. <laughs> okay. And we won't get into to spoilers, but the way it ended, I could see there being a continuation. Yes, I always, I mean, similar to B, I subscribe to, always leave them wanting more. <laughs> so um, I do think it is a slightly ambiguous ending, which some people don't respond to. But I always like an ambiguous ending when I'm reading and seeing a movie, especially when I'm talking about it with somebody, because I think it just kind of gives you a little something to chew on. Like, what do you think that was about? I referenced it earlier. I think the announcement came out that uh, was it Universal, they're, they're developing Stone Cold Fox to be a, a TV series, so is it early stages now? It is the early stages, but the deal has officially closed and we're all very excited. So the next phase is we'll be going out to actresses to make some attachments and then hopefully go to networks and then see see who wants to bite. Um, but yeah, it's, it's early days and we're figuring out the pitch and um, I'm really, really excited because I'd be lying to you if I said this wasn't part of my grand plan <laughs> when yeah. I sat down to write the book. Um, I've always wanted to write a book, of course, and first and foremost, I wanted to write a great book. But as a screenwriter, I was getting very frustrated with having to pitch on other people's IP because that is sort of how the industry is right now. And so I would get, you know, requests to come in and pitch on all these different books and they're great and they're wonderful, but it's like, you know, I have my own ideas as well. So one of my representatives who no longer represents me a few years ago said something kind of snarky like, well, Rachel, if you want all the creative control, you're just going to have to 
sit down and write your own book. And I was like, well, that's exactly what I'm going to do. Um, so I'm very excited that um, we landed where we did. And Universal is great. And producer Julie Pleck is amazing. And I'm very optimistic. But it is early days. So everyone, everyone keep their fingers crossed for me. <laughs> because the direction this is heading, you maybe you wouldn't feel comfortable. But dream casting for some of the characters? <laughs> any ideas? I mean, I have a lot of ideas in that regard. But I can share, like, who I pictured okay. while I was writing. I mean, B especially, I just picture her as like the most beautiful woman on the planet and I really did picture like Margot Robbie a lot specifically the first scene when she shows up in the Wolf of Wall Street in that blue dress and every guy in the place has his jaw on the floor and she just commands the room like she's definitely someone I thought a lot about um, for B specifically and then similarly for Mother you know I thought a lot about you know Michelle Pfeiffer Uma Thurman since I just watched the Pam Anderson documentary and she's kind of having a renaissance I was like that's interesting but also just kind of you know woman of a certain age who's also a blonde bombshell type and Gail's a little more amorphous in my head because she's kind of a mishmash of like the way some people have made she's not based on anybody it's more just like how people in that world sometimes would make you feel for example so but like a silly example even though this isn't who it would be but I thought a lot of the movie Legally Blonde for example and just kind of the Al Woods and the Vivian Kensington of it all were kind of I I used to pitch this as like Legally Blonde meets American Psycho Okay, I get that for sure. For some reason, this is because I came of age in the 90s. I was thinking of uh, young Allie Larder, like Varsity Blues. First thing that popped in my head. Then the more I read, I was like thinking Margot Robbie. But Allie Larder's in the same same vicinity, especially in that movie. Just kind of like she walks in the room and you can tell she's up to something. (laughs) Now the, the book is out. What's it been like now that you can engage with people or reading what you spent so much time on? Oh, it's so rewarding because I feel like people are really responding to it. And I'm very happy to hear that a lot of people, a lot of people are admitting to really liking B despite her nefarious intent. And that's really what I wanted to accomplish. So I feel like what I've been hearing is that people have really connected with the characters, even if they think they're monsters. And that's really what I wanted to create are like, three-dimensional characters that feel real and when you finish the book in a few months if someone asks you you're not going to forget about B and so I feel like that's been kind of the theme like people are like oh she's iconic I'm going to remember her forever and that's so exciting um and it's just cool to see people tag me on bookstagram or send me an email that they like the book and it's on Amazon now, so you watch your rankings. It's just like a really cool experience, and I'm having fun and like keeping perspective because not everyone is gonna like the book, and that's fine too. Because I don't know, I think if you write something that everyone universally likes, I mean, how good can it be? Like, how strong is your point of view? So, but generally, I feel like the feedback has been super positive. Rachel, thanks so much. Thanks for having me. <laughs> she keeps that's author Rachel Kohler Croft. Her book, Stone Cold Fox, is available everywhere books are sold. You can find more information at rachelkohlercroft.com. And that's going to wrap up this edition of the Arts Section. But remember, you can always find more arts and culture online by visiting the show's website, theartssection.org. There you can find past episodes and individual features available to listen to on demand anytime you want plus pictures and links that go along with all the features you hear on the show my name is gary zydek i hope you'll join me again next sunday morning 
at 8 a.m. right here on 90.9 and 90.7 FM for another edition of the Arts Section. Until then, I hope you have a great week. I want to wish a very happy birthday to my little guy, Julian. Happy birthday, buddy. Thanks for listening. Every day, in every way, it's getting better and better.